it would have been nice if those guys in 86 went to Europe en masse and then started to develop. And then other clubs can have their eyes open to, okay, what else is going on in Canada? What else should we be looking at? That never happened, really. And it set this nomad part of Canada soccer's history in motion where like, they were kind of spinning their wheels. It was kind of like a Haley's Comet moment in 1985 and 86. The problem is that comet came down to Earth instead of traveling to some other galaxy and, and having some heights. It ended. Last chapter, we told you the story of Canada's men's national team history from its inception in the mid-1800s up to the aftermath of their goalless showing at their first World Cup appearance in 1986. In this chapter of Canada's soccer and World Cup journey, we're looking at the bridge years, or what I've termed the middle child generation of Canadian soccer. The players inspired by the 1986 crew, but for a variety of reasons, unable to replicate a World Cup berth. After 1986, Canada failed to qualify for eight straight World Cups. Their 36-year active drought was only topped by seven other nations. Countries like Greece, Croatia, and Ghana qualified for their first World Cup after 1986 and blossomed into perennial threats at the competition in the 21st century, while Canada experienced repeated turmoil. Considering Canada's passion and resources for sport, the repeated absence from the game's greatest stage is hard to fathom. In this chapter, we'll chat with four titans of Canadian soccer media, who all bring their own perspectives and memories to the 36 years of qualification failure Canada endured after 1986. I was playing in England. I got there in 84. So I'd already been there a couple of years. Uh, the Canadian Soccer Association completely ignored me, to be honest, even Ipswich Town Football Club. And back then, they were one of the very top teams in Europe. They contacted the Canadian Soccer Association and said, you've qualifying going on or even going to the World Cup. You have a Canadian here just to let you know that you should probably look at. And uh, yeah, they, so they didn't even return phone calls. The man speaking who couldn't get a phone call back would eventually be named Canada's finest ever goalie in 2012. Oh, what a great save by Craig Forrest. Connor racing through. Connor with a shot. Great save by Forrest. Pickering again manages to get it across. Good shot. Good save. Forrest spreading himself so well there. Craig Forrest had a long, accomplished Premier League career, playing for Ipswich Town, West Ham, and Chelsea and he would eventually appear over 50 times for Canada. The Canadian Soccer Association's total disregard of Forrest in 1986 becomes even more confounding when we remember that many of the players who made Canada's final squad didn't have a team at the time or were playing indoor soccer. Here was one of their own, playing in England's first division, and they weren't even picking up the phone. For Forrest... Being one of the first overseas players in England was isolating enough on its own. Being a Canadian was a big anchor on my back, of course, and I think that's not really changed until recently. 
there's a lot more respect and uh, you see international players playing everywhere and it doesn't matter and Canadians are making noise in Europe and whatnot so uh, from a player standpoint it was a, a very difficult thing because you had to really almost talk your way over there pay your way over there you're Canadian they're like yeah okay we'll have a look at you for a couple days but yeah just uh, being Canadian was not a, not a great thing to have on you. After early elimination from 1990 World Cup qualifying, 1986 head coach Tony Waiters would return for a short stint as Canada's manager from 1989 to 1991. Perhaps the best decision he made from his second tenure was making Forrest the nation's first-choice keeper. He was a very intriguing fella, too, and an absolute gem of a human being. Like, you know, I never met anybody that didn't like Tony Waiters, you know. I mean, I guess some of the guys that were left out of that World Cup home instead of being in the squad. But, yeah, he built a side that, you know, he knew what he had, and it wasn't an awful lot. We, you know, we had a little bit up front, um, but, you know, struggling to score goals was always a problem. We defended well. We organized really well. He played to our strengths, and he got the job done. Mondays are changing. No longer that start of the week depression. We're into a whole new ball game on Sky Sports. Mondays are now officially part of the weekend. On the opening match day of the newly rebranded English Premier League in 1992, Forrest would be one of only 13 international players to start for a first division side. At 25 years old, he was ready to help lead a Canadian qualification campaign to the 1994 World Cup in the U.S. Because the U.S. was hosting, they therefore gained an automatic qualification, taking away one of Canada's main CONCACAF competitors. Unfortunately, there was only uh, one and a quarter spot, they called it. So one automatic. Mexico were obviously, you know, the top side uh, U.S. automatic spot. So we took Mexico right to the last game, tied on points. But we needed to win that game because of their goal differential from pumping teams in Azteca. Mm -hmm. So that quarter spot, when we finished second in CONCACAF, we had to play Australia home and away, which we ended up losing on penalties in Sydney, which we played really well. We should have won that series. But if we did, then we had to play Diego Maradona and Argentina home and away. And then if we beat them, we were going to the World Cup. So it was tough to make the World Cup back then. The Americans did it their way, of course. The brash and the beautiful went side by side, but only rarely did they look like failing. And only just occasionally did they leave themselves open to accusations of artificiality. While gatekeepers of the game expressed skepticism about a North American World Cup, Canada would watch from home as the U.S. would get out of the group stage and play Brazil tightly in the round of 16. The moderate success on home turf had bolstered the popularity of the game in America. Major League Soccer, or as we now know at the MLS, would launch two years later with 10 American franchises and the general population would receive a first-class education in the game's nuances. One reason soccer dominates the world as it does is the fact that the rules are transparently simple. The pitch is rectangular. The ball is round. And all these years, I thought the ball was square. You can't use your hands unless you're the goalkeeper. And a game involves 22 foreigners in funny shorts kicking the ball and each other for 90 minutes. After this period in the normal course of events, the Germans win. Thanks to educational materials just like this, the U.S. would qualify for the next five consecutive World Cups. Landon Donovan, there are things on here for the USA. Can they do it here? Cross, and Dempsey is denied again, and Donovan has scored! Oh, can you believe this? Go, go, USA! 
You could not write a script like this. What a golden goal for the USA if you're just joining us. There it is, the moment, deep, deep into the match to give the USA surely a place in the last 16. It is breathtakingly exciting. While Forrest had a front row seat to Canadian games from between his posts, there was a new generation of fans growing up in Canada who were struggling to find access to the team. There were those who had seen the 1986 team and were desperate to see soccer maintain relevance in Canada, such as Sid Sexero. I still remember, I forget which World Cup cycle it was. It may have been USA 94. Canada went to Australia in the dead of night. TSN had the feed, and I think they lost the feed. And I was in the wilderness going, what is going on? And there were fans born just after Canada's World Cup appearance, relying on the stories of others to learn about Canadian soccer. It's funny when you compare the teams now, you know, having a bit more access to the archives or to see the qualifying phase. I feel like that's not something that I saw as a kid. I never saw that game at St. John's at King George's Fifth Park. We didn't get to really hear those stories. It was just, ah, they went to the World Cup in 86 and they weren't very good. Brendan Dunlop's high-profile gigs include being a Sportsnet anchor for the better part of 10 years and hosting the CBC Olympics recap show in 2021. But at his absolute core, Dunlop is a soccer junkie. I grew up in Windsor in the 90s. Canada weren't competing in international competitions. So in the 90s, my access to the international game was the U.S. men's national team. They would play games in Michigan. They were always on television. And that wasn't the case for the Canadian men's national team. I really don't recall them being on TV, games of value. My connection to the international game was the United States. But I just think that Canada as an international program was very much out of sight, out of mind for a lot of Canadians. It's interesting that that period is almost lost. If Canada had qualified for USA 94, the trajectory that the program and the game in this country would have been on would just be totally, totally different. So that goes down for a lot of people as a real, not lost opportunity, but a moment that could have changed everything and just wasn't meant to be. For the 1998 World Cup, FIFA expanded the tournament format from 24 to 32 teams. The change most crucially meant that now the top three teams in CONCACAF would receive automatic qualification. Canada would make it to the final round of qualification again, but come last in the group of six after only securing six points from 10 games. After six managerial changes since waiters had left for the first time in 1986, Canada went abroad with their hire of the no-nonsense German Holger Osiek. Holger was tough, man. He was a tough guy to play for. He, it was sometimes not enjoyable. It was brutal at times, but he softened a little bit and sort of understood the guys. And, you know, it was, it was a different cap, but it, it kept everybody on their toes. Osiak's first tournament would be the 2000 Gold Cup. The Continental Tournament featured sides from the North American, Central American, and Caribbean zones, as well as a few invites from elsewhere in the globe. That year, it was Colombia, Peru, and South Korea. Since the creation of the tournament in 1991, Canada had failed to make it past the group stage. And it looked like 2000 would yield similar results. After tying their opening two games, Canada would require a coin flip tiebreaker to advance to the tournament's knockout stages. After having some luck in what felt like the first time in 14 years, the Canucks improbably defeated Mexico, Trinidad and Tobago, and Colombia on the trot to become the first ever nation outside of the U.S. or Mexico to lift the trophy. 
here comes Martin Nash with lots of room, and he's got Garrett Cush, and he's also got Richard Hastings, and here comes Hastings, if he can get a shot at it, and he scores for Canada! Richard Hastings has won it for Canada, who are through to the semifinals, do you? So now, this kick to be taken here, and it's a goal for Canada by Carlo Corazon to give Canada the 2-0 lead. And how big is that, folks? It's official. Canada, 2000 Gold Cup champions. How does that sound? What a way to start the new decade, the new century for Canadian soccer with the biggest international win they have ever had. In a rarity for a goalkeeper, Craig Forrest was named tournament MVP after his shot-stopping heroics led to Canadian clean sheets in the semifinals and final. That was my fourth or fifth Gold Cup I'd already played in, had some decent runs, but we were never really sort of expecting to win anything. And the Gold Cup itself, phenomenal achievement. And I and think part of the reason why I say that is uh, it was CONCACAF was a different place from a leadership point of view as well. Jack Warner and Seth Blatter, and they're all in the photo of the Gold Cup. You know, I don't even Chuck Blazer might even be there as well. So just an absolute corrupt CONCACAF that we always felt that we were on an unlevel playing field all the time. And in some ways, you know, from a business standpoint, we brought nothing to the table. Um, didn't bring any fans. I mean, if it was all teams were Canada and the Gold Cup, Canada, the Gold Cup wouldn't even exist because nobody supports it. They lost a lot of money, I believe, $5 million on that particular Gold Cup. And I remember saying after it, saying it's going to be a long time before we see anybody outside the U.S. and Mexico win this tournament just because of those reasons alone. And we haven't. It's been over 20 years, and the only team that's won it outside of them is Canada. Access to the game just wasn't a thing until 1998 when Sportsnet got the Premier League contract and made a live 10 a.m. game available every single Saturday. So that Gold Cup, I think if you had a reason to be curious about Canada, that tournament was the tournament. Canada wasn't a side that was expected to contend, let alone to win it. But they had players that you may have known, uh, players that were playing in England or places that you'd and teams that you'd seen on Soccer Saturday or maybe had the opportunity to actually watch on TV in Canada. So that 2000 win really was triumphant. It came out of nowhere. It seemed like a needle mover. I think 2000 Gold Cup is probably the time where you look at it and say, okay, this is a trophy. That matters. And was it the ugliest tournament ever? Maybe. (laughs) None of those guys cared. I didn't care. I was jumping around. I was working at the Score Television Network at the time, jumping around watching the guys in the rain win. You know, when I saw that, I'm like, there's hope. I don't know how, if you're a Canadian soccer fan or observer of Canadian soccer, how you can't watch the 2000 Gold Cup and say, okay, okay, we have a chance here to do something great. It seemed Canada had liftoff in the 21st century, yet when current Canadian Premier League vice president and former TSN lead soccer analyst Christian Jack immigrated from the UK in 2000, he found himself puzzled by Canada's soccer culture. I did have the Gold Cup happen literally a month after I moved here as a permanent resident Canadian, which was fantastic for me because growing up in England, I hadn't heard much about the Gold Cup, but I certainly knew of the players that were on that team. That was really cool for me to see Canada winning what was a trophy that was very similar to the Euros. What mystified me was just how many people played the game and how little people cared about the game professionally. You know, you have to remember, I arrived in this country to see so many people playing the sport, but no professional clubs and nobody really caring about Canada playing 
it was basically the equivalent of watching, no disrespect to these sports, but watching badminton or something like that. It was basically, you occasionally saw a, a soccer game on television. The disconnect between the youths playing the sport and the actual attention on the professional level was something I'd never seen before. Jack was right. Since the 90s, there had been significantly more player registrations for soccer in Canada than for hockey. But to ensure Canadian youth athletes turned into lifelong fans of the game, it would require the cooperation of network higher-ups. When I became very blessed to start working in sports television in 2003 at the Score Television Network, and we started to talk more about football and soccer, as you call it, you know, we had a show called Sports World, which was basically encompassing a 30-minute show on in, in international, more flavored sports. And it was quite funny, actually. I never forget an executive at the time was given a tour and said to some people, oh, this is a show called Sports World. They talk about yesterday's news. And it was almost like a little bit of a thought, like, no, actually, that's not true. Like, we had to change the narrative of the business leaders, the executives, the people who had a lot of say at these levels to say, no, actually, this sport is not inferior. This sport didn't suddenly just take off at that time. What you notice about this country is that when I moved here, there was massive hotbeds for the sport everywhere. But it was like this underground club. It was like this club you didn't know until you got in it. You know, fans of Benfica or Sporting and Port Little Portugal were finding these. Rangers in Scotland, the Scots, they knew where to go watch these games. But pre-social media world, there wasn't all this massive news about where you could go. You either knew or you found out from a mate or you went somewhere else and then you became part of their culture. The best way to convince people that soccer was must-see TV would be to have a homegrown star. And when a Calgary-born and raised teenager named Owen Hargreaves began starring for German champions Bayern Munich in the fall of 2000, it seemed Canada might just have one. Until they didn't. It was a long way from Calgary for Owen Hargreaves. The Canadian played his first game tonight for the English national team. The star himself comes across as being confident in a soft-spoken way. I mean, I did grow up in Canada and I... I never really suspected I would end up playing for England one day. So, I mean, once I got the opportunity, it was almost, I couldn't really turn it down. So I'm, I'm surprised that I'm here and I'm, and I'm happy that I'm here. Well, the Owen Hargraves is probably the low point. People say Honduras 8-1 is the low point. The low point's not Honduras 8-1, because we can have another conversation about that. The low point is seeing the Owen Hargraves of the world want nothing to do with us. That's worse. That is worse, because then that guy, and I have nothing against Owen, he made his choice, he's entitled to. That guy, who knows what he's saying in dressing rooms? Who knows what he's saying about Canadian soccer behind the scenes? Because you know he's getting questions, especially from the English media. They know his story, they're not dumb. You know, what was happening in Canada, blah, blah, blah. Like, that type of rep can grow. I knew when he made that decision, we were in trouble as a country for a bit. It was gonna take a while to get over that. History would repeat itself when Canada's next great talent, Jonathan de Guzman from Scarborough, chose to play for the Netherlands internationally after joining the Dutch club Feyenoord at the age of 12. There was no denying the obvious. The top players from Canada were actively looking for ways not to represent their nation internationally. I can't blame those players at all for having the opportunity. And that's the thing as well, talk about access for us as fans watching on television. 
for players, you know, there, there wasn't a natural pathway like there are in these other countries. And it's very clear that if you were elite in Canada, if you were an elite soccer player in your teens, you had to leave. So when he started for Holland at the 2014 World Cup, I believe it was against Spain in that opening match in 2014 in Brazil. As someone who lived in Scarborough for 10 years, I was so incredibly proud. To me, he was a Canadian, though he wasn't playing for Canada at the time. I never understood these fans that got angry, those players, like they did a disservice to the country and to the program. When I moved back to Canada and just seeing sort of the fight back and the pushback against the sport here, protecting of their, their sport, which is hockey, like it was this, you know, almost a fight against soccer, which I found very interesting because in England, they, they're very they're into athletics, they're into golf, they're into rugby, cricket, everything. And they support it all. There's not, they don't sort of poo-poo anything, but that's not the fact here. So after seeing that and just how they lack of exposure, lack of support, Sometimes I, at that time, I, I certainly changed my thought. You know, I, they, maybe they made the right decision. Frankly, at that time, what Canada soccer wasn't doing was giving them enough motivation and reasons to pick them. So, you know, I know they go down as players that weren't necessarily looked upon favorably within the Canadian soccer circles. And I understand that. But there was a lot of things behind closed doors that were happening that made it very difficult for them to make that choice. And once they were given a choice to go and play in major tournaments like World Cups and the European Championships for their other countries, it's very hard to sit back and blame them and point fingers at these players when really little reason for them to decide that they could pick for Canada. Similar to the aftermath of the 1986 World Cup appearance, Canada had failed to capitalize on the excitement of its Gold Cup win. What a way to start the new decade. To kind of answer the question of why 2000 didn't work to funnel or fuel or speed up the development, I just don't think anyone was prepared for it. I don't think there wasn't an infrastructure at the time and that there really weren't enough minds involved with the federation, which is a rather small federation. You think about where soccer is in this country, where it sits in the sports landscape and marketplace. It still is rather niche. It still is very small. And it's a federation that's run as a nonprofit. And it's not run like a giant business entity the way Hockey Canada is as a national sports body. And I think that 2000 was a missed opportunity to grow that and advance that. And that's why you see now, and particularly in, in 2022, this push from everyone involved in the game at levels lower than that administration level, wanting to see this elevation and this rapid development, ascension, if you will, in the boardrooms to meet the rest of the world, because that's the only way that the game will go forward. And in 2000, they missed out on that opportunity. It didn't last long, the buzz after 2000. The exactly. men's team is like the stock market, starting at around February 2020. It's up and down, it's up and down, sometimes it's really down. But, but again, it was like 86, it, there was a sustainability issue. And as we're seeing now, the gut of your people have to be playing in the best places. They just have to be. And if they're not, it's going to show because everyone else's best people are essentially playing in the best places. It didn't happen after 86. It didn't happen after 2000. That was probably the biggest issue with both of those eras. It was short-lived because the depth wasn't as good as it could have been, and it didn't grow after. That was the biggest issue. Forrest would retire in 2002 and immediately transition to media, doing commentary for both the women's and men's national teams. 
tough because I was calling all sorts of those games. Uh, women as well. So the women were doing fairly well. So I was actually enjoying doing the women's games a lot more than the men's games because it was just crushing. And I was even doing the call when they got beat, you know, hammered in Honduras. Well, I don't think we really have any need to talk about Team Canada right now. Dejection in amongst the coaching staff and players. They really have to hold their head in shame with that performance. It was doom and gloom for years and years. There wasn't a lot of positivity coming out of our national program. Canada finished last in their CONCACAF World Cup qualifying groups in both 2006 and 2010. In 2014, they showed more promise before the aforementioned devastating 8-1 loss in Honduras eliminated them from advancing to the final round of qualification. The loss to Honduras stung, not only because of the humiliating scoreline, but because 25 years after Canada had defeated Honduras in Newfoundland to qualify for their first World Cup, it was hard to see the 8-1 scoreline and argue that the national program had gone anywhere but backwards. Canada fell to an all-time low of 122nd in FIFA's world rankings, and after an entirely unsuccessful decade, it seemed they were somehow in need of a complete rebuild. It is time to get behind Canada's men's team because they need us. Teams cannot be coming to BMO Field or wherever Team Canada plays and half the crowd is supporting El Salvador. This is not a one-way street. The team isn't that good. They need a lift. BMO Field has to become a bit of a fortress here. And you can't have eight busloads of Mexican supporters coming up from Buffalo and dominating. If Canadian soccer fans really care about seeing Canada back in a World Cup... It's time to show up. It's time to dominate our home turf and buy some tickets. And it's time for people to show up. These are massive fixtures. And only if BMO is full will those guys on the field get a lift. If half the crowd is supporting Honduras, it doesn't matter. In 2018, Canada again failed to make the final round of World Cup qualifying. With the national team seemingly stuck in second-rate irrelevance, Canada seemed further away than ever from breaking their World Cup drought. But a closer look revealed reasons for optimism. Attendance rates were rising drastically at home games. Canadian players were being recruited all over Europe at young ages. And most critically, a promising new voice was establishing himself with Canada's thriving women's program. I'm a coach. And so are you. You've just got to choose to accept it. You look at me and go, your job is to motivate people. Your job is too. Your job's no different to me. Go and light the fires of your kids. Go and light the fires of your colleagues. Don't hide from that responsibility. Go and make someone great. Go and be great yourself. In Chapter 3, Canada would burst out of the depths in bloom. (laughs) 